Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're having a pleasant Sabbath. And I don't know where how the weather's been where you live. For those of you listening over the internet, but it's been absolutely beautiful weather here in Missouri and very mild weather throughout the spring and summer. Fed plenty of rain, abundant sunshine, and couldn't ask for greater weather. It's been very pleasant, at least in that regard. We've got a lot to be thankful for. In a sermon I gave a while back, I made reference to Revelation 21.7, where we're told that those who overcome will inherit all things implying not just the earth itself, but the universe. In response, I received the following question, and this is the question, quoting, that I received. In your sermon, you talked about how we will rule the heavens, other planets, in the kingdom. I can see where that might happen ultimately, but I have never understood that. For example, Psalm 8, 6 through 9 has the phrase, all things under his feet, but it is talking about the earth. Is it that what God is talking about? It always seemed to me that God was describing the earth when I read the whole chapter. There was a minister that gave a sermon about we each would have a planet to rule. I think we have a lot to learn first. If we can't rule our families or even manage a business, God sure isn't going to put us in charge of a planet. So that was the question the comment that I received. And I thought this question or question slash comment would be something useful for us to discuss. Exactly what is the inheritance God has in store for his children? Is it the earth? Is it a planet for each of his children? Is it the universe? Perhaps even more importantly, what does it take to have a part in the inheritance God has in store for his children? What is God looking for? What does God want out of us? out of you and me that will assure us a part in his inheritance, whatever it might be. Well, the first question first, what is the inheritance God has in store for his children? Now, this is really quite an important question. It's not an insignificant, an insignificant question at all. It is an important question. It's a question to which God wants us to know the answer. Notice what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians, in Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, and beginning with verse 15, Paul wrote to them, Therefore also after I heard of your faith in the Lord, Jesus, and your love for all the saints, 
do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the, ever, the, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is something Paul said that he prayed to God about concerning the brethren, the believers, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of their understanding being enlightened, that they may know what is the hope of their calling. What would be the riches of the glory of the inheritance that God has planned for them? What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward those who believe? Actually, I've prayed a similar prayer many times concerning the people that I've served in the ministry and no doubt other ministers have done the same seeking God's revelation the giving of understanding deeper understanding and wisdom to those who are seeking God and striving to pursue a relationship with God. And it is very important that we understand what that inheritance is because as Paul implies here in this statement, the more we know about what God has in mind, what his purpose and plan is for mankind, what his purpose and plan is for the future, the better we can understand God himself. And actually, the, the better we understand God's plan and the better we know God, the more likely we are to be able to be a part of what God has in store for the future in terms of his family. And I assume that all of us listening to this sermon today want to be in God's kingdom and want to have a part in his plan this sermon will prob probably be posted on our website. Other people will be listening to it later on, perhaps, and hopefully they too will want to have a part in God's plan for mankind, 
want to have what God has purposed for them as individuals fulfilled in their lives. Be helpful to know what that purpose is. The writer of the question that I quoted said of Psalm 8, verses 6 through 9, quoting the statement that was made by the person who wrote the question, the phrase, all things under his feet, is talking about the earth. Is it that what God is talking about? Is it the earth that is placed under his feet? Or, excuse me, is it that what God is talking about? End of quote. But the, the question is, is it indeed the earth that it is talking about? Is that what it is talking about in that psalm where it says something will be placed under his feet? All things will be placed under his feet. So let's turn over to Psalm 8 and let's read this psalm, see what it actually says. Psalm 8. And verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent in your, is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So we see here that it's talking about the earth, how God's name is excellent in all the earth, but also mentions that God's glory is above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now this is significant too and eventually we'll get to discussing some of the significance of this kind of statement that we find in the Bible in verse 2. It goes on to say in verse 3, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. So here the psalmist is talking about the universe, the heavens, the moon and the stars, which God made with his fingers, which he ordained. And the statement is, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It's talking about mankind. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the sea, or the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So it is true that it is speaking of the earth where it speaks of those things that have been placed under the feet of mankind and this is simply a, a figurative expression meaning that these things have been placed under man's dominion. That man was given authority over these things, responsibility over these things to govern and to rule them, to administer them, to be a steward over them. 
And it is indeed speaking of the earth. God gave dominion over the gave mankind dominion over the earth when he created the first human beings. Notice what God said to Adam, to Adam and Eve uh, over in in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28. God blessed them. He had created the man and woman, Adam and Eve, male and female, as it tells us in the previous verses. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So notice that they were instructed to fill the earth and subdue it. The earth was created as the habitation for the human family. And they were to fill it up with their descendants and they were to subdue it. They were made administrators over it, rulers over it, if you want to use that term. But they were stewards over the God's creation, the earth, and over the things that were on the earth. So, certainly the earth is included in those things that have been placed under the feet of mankind, but is that all that God intends for humans to have dominion over when his plan for mankind is consummated? When the scripture says, you have put all things under his feet, as we read in Psalm 8, does that mean exclusively the earth and nothing else is to be placed under mankind's dominion? Let's go back over to Psalm 8 for, for a minute. In verse 6, it says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You have put, you have made him, uh, made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Now the expression works of your hands is not to be taken literally. But it is an expression that is used a number of times actually in the scriptures of the things that God has made, including individual human beings. And it is an expression of the fact when something is spoken of as a work of God's hands, it is simply a, a figurative expression indicating that that is something that God has created, that God made, as one might make something with his hands. It doesn't necessarily mean that God literally made whatever is being discussed with his hands, and we know that other scriptures tell us that the universe was created through the power of God's command. He didn't necessarily make literally make the earth with his hands, but he did create it. And that's what the expression means. And 
What is it that then God, quote, made with his hands, end quote? What is it that God created? What is included in that expression, the work of your hands or the works of your hands when applied to God? Notice in Psalm 102 and verse 25, Psalm 102 and verse 25. We already read in verse 3 of Psalm 8 that the heavens are spoken of as the work of your fingers. Speaking of God, the heavens are the work of your fingers. Now, aren't the fingers part of the hand? Over in Psalm 102, verse 25, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. It specifically tells us here that the heavens are the work of your hands. And it tells us, as we read in Psalm 8, verse 6, that of mankind that you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. Now, the one through whom God created all things is, in fact, Jesus Christ. Notice over in John chapter 1 and verse 1, because Jesus Christ did not begin his life when he was born of Mary, he had been God, the eternal God, a member of the Godhead, having life inherent in himself. Notice in verse 1 of John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was both with God, and he was God. implying at least two members of the Godhead. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So it tells us that this word was the one through whom God made everything, that nothing that God has created was made apart from him. He is the one who directly created everything that God has made. And in verse 14, it says of this word, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, who was God, who had created everything, became a human being. He was called Jesus Christ. But he was a man. He became a man. And eventually he died, was crucified. But then he was resurrected to immortality as a son of God, firstborn from the dead. That is, the firstborn to be resurrected from the state of being a dead human being to immortality, to 
the very likeness of God himself. And in Jesus Christ, we're told, dwells all the fullness of God, meaning that he is fully God. In him dwells all the fullness of God. He has all the attributes of God. And we're also told that through Jesus Christ, in whom dwells all the fullness of God, which means that he is fully God, all things in heaven and earth are to be reconciled to God. And that he is preeminent over all things, whether in heaven or in earth. And all of that is told us over in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read that. Colossians 1 and verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 15. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, as we mentioned. For by Him all things were created, which we just read earlier in John chapter 1. By Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now notice here that it says all things were created by him and that all things is defined as everything that is in heaven and on the earth, everything that is created that is either visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. In other words, everything that exists, every created thing that exists was created by him. And it says he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In other words, he is the, he is the source from which they have their existence. And it says he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. All the fullness of God dwells in the Son, and it is through Jesus Christ that God intends to reconcile all things to himself. As it says, by him, whether things on the earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. So, all things exist through Jesus Christ, who, remember, is a man who was resurrected and has become a son of God. And we're told that God has placed all things under his feet. Not only did he create all things, he has been given dominion over all things. 
Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 27. And actually this is a quotation from Psalm 8 and verse 6. It says, For he had, has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. All things have been placed under the feet of Jesus Christ. Also in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. Ephesians 1 and verse 22. It says, As we read earlier, he put all things under his feet, speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, we already read that all things includes all things that are in heaven and earth. All things refers to that which is visible or invisible. Everything that exists, everything that is created. The Greek expression translated all things in Colossians 1 and verse 16 and at least most if not every other place where this expression occurs in the New Testament the Greek expression is ta panta the lexical form of this noun is pas but the expression is ta panta, which literally means the all. The all or the everything. And as A.T. Robertson comments in commenting on Colossians 1 and verse 16 of this expression, ta panta, he says it means the universe. A well-known philosophical phrase in, other, phrase. in other words, this was a common Greek expression when someone was speaking of the universe. Ta panta, usually when it is used in Greek writing and when it's used in the New Testament, means literally everything it means the universe now paul actually quotes psalm 8 again actually this psalm is referred to several places in the new testament but one of those places is in hebrews chapter 2 notice in hebrews chapter 2 and In chapter 2, we find that the words of Psalm 8 do not apply only to this age, that they apply to the future as well. Notice here in Psalm or Hebrews 2 and verse 5, it says, He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. In other words, angels are not going to be ruling 
the world, as it says, to come, and, and this world, as we will see, is not just limited to the earth. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. This is Psalm 8 being quoted here. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Paul goes on to comment, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. goes on to say, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Now, remember what we read about all things being created by Jesus Christ. And all things, again, Includes everything on the earth and in the heavens. Everything that exists, visible or invisible. And bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So all things is not limited to the earth or the things on the earth. Now, in an apparent, in a, an apparent reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, and Psalm 8, verse 6, Paul in 1 Corinthians explains, 1 Corinthians 15, explains that all authority will be made subject to the Son of God, except that of the Father himself, which we read earlier. Now notice what this what this leads to, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 24. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. We'll get we'll get back to this word end here in a minute to discuss what it actually means. Then come, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. Again, quoting Psalm 8 verse 6. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put all things, that, that, that he who put all things under him, meaning the Father, is accepted. In other words, everything is going to be placed under the feet of Jesus Christ except the Father. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 
that God may be all in all. In other words, when the plan of God is consummated, when it is completed, God's purpose for mankind, God will be all and in all. All who remain at that time will be God. God will be in all of them. They will be members of the divine family. And all other power, all opposing powers, all those who seek to overthrow God or to rebel against God will have been subdued, brought under submission, or they will have been removed. And then Christ is going to deliver the kingdom to the Father, we're told. Now, in verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, we see that those who are resurrected into the kingdom of God will be bearing the image of the Son, in the image of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 49 it says, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That is, just like we now are made in the likeness of Adam, made of flesh and blood, of the dust of the earth, at that time we will be like Jesus Christ, just as much as we are like Adam now. We will share his nature. And it is a different nature from that of flesh and blood. And we're told here, that flesh and blood cannot inherit God's kingdom. Verse 50, it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We, we will not, if we're going to, be inheriting the kingdom of God we will not be doing it in this flesh because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God for us to become heirs of God in the way that God intends requires that we no longer be limited by our fleshly nature we must be changed our nature must be changed. We must become like God, like Jesus Christ. Those in the first resurrection are promised to share in the inheritance that God has given to Jesus Christ, which, as we've seen, includes all things. In fact, every single person who is sooner or later to be granted a place in God's kingdom as his sons or a son will share in that heritage. That heritage will belong to every member of the divine family. And that inheritance includes the gift of eternal life, which is God life, the same life that God himself possesses that he will give to us and in a sense is already given 
in a provisional way to those who have received God's Spirit. Notice in John 3 and verse 16, John 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in Titus 3 and verse 7, Titus 3 and verse 7, Paul writes, Having been justified by His grace that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, we will inherit eternal life, and along with that, whatever else it is that the God family is to inherit as sons of God. And the sons of God, we're told, will be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ has inherited will be shared by others. Notice in Romans 8 and verse 7. Romans 8 and verse 7. At 17, it says, well, let's go back to verse 16, pick up the context. It says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Notice if we're children of God, we are heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Now think about an heir and what that implies, even in human terms. If a man or a couple have a child and make that child their heir, that means that child has claim to whatever those that couple owns, their possessions, as well as their name, and so forth. And the same is true of heirs of God. The heirs of God have a claim to whatever God owns. And we've already seen that God has granted as his heir to Jesus Christ everything, all things. And it says that those others who are children of God will be joint heirs with Christ, that they will share the inheritance with him. Whatever his inheritance is, they will share. And his inheritance is everything. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth in glorious power, he will establish his rule over the entire world. Notice in Revelation 11 and verse 15. Revelation 11 and verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This world is referring to this earth, as other scriptures make plain. Jesus Christ is returning. He's returning to Jerusalem. He's going to establish his throne there and he's going to rule the nations of the earth. 
And those who have overcome in this age and are in the first resurrection will be given places of responsibility in serving under Christ in His world-ruling government. They will be sharing in the power that Christ will be given over the earth to rule it and to rule it responsibly and mercifully and in a way that will be beneficial to those being ruled. Notice in Daniel 7 and verse 27, Daniel 7 and verse 27, <clears throat> this is a prophecy of that time when Christ returns, and it says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, this is talking about the earth, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. Notice it's not just to be given to Jesus Christ alone, but will be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, His kingdom, meaning that of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the same kingdom to be given to the saints, is an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey Him. So Jesus Christ is going to subdue the earth and the entire earth will be His dominion and the saints will share in administering government over the dominion of the earth, the entire earth, during that period called the millennium. Over in Revelation 3 and verse 21, notice what Jesus said to those who overcome. Revelation 3 and verse 21. <clears throat> to him who over overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Now God the Father has established a throne for Jesus Christ and in a sense it is the Father's throne because the authority is granted from the Father and He has granted complete authority to Jesus Christ. Uh, except authority over himself, as we read. And Jesus said to those who overcome, they will sit on his throne, just as he sits on the throne of his Father. In other words, they will be granted authority and rulership and will be sharing in ruling whatever Jesus Christ himself is ruling. Over in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, Revelation 20 and verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. They shall reign with him a thousand years. And... 
back in verse 4, it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. So they will be ruling with Christ. Also says in verse 4 that they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those in the first resurrection. And Christ will establish his rule over the nations and rule the earth as its king for a thousand years. What about after the millennium? Eventually after the millennium and after the white throne judgment also written about in Revelation 20 we're told that God the Father will descend from the third heaven with his throne and he not only Jesus Christ but the Father as well will dwell on the earth with mankind. Notice in chapter 21 and verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In other words, there will be a complete reformation of the earth. And the heavenly sphere in its motions and so forth. And there was no more sea. And this is very likely not saying there will be no more oceans. It is most likely referring to the Mediterranean Sea <clears throat> because that area will be a part of the New Jerusalem which will exist at that time. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, is with men. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. Now there's no scripture that says the saints are going up to heaven to get married to Jesus, as some teach. There aren't any scriptures which teach that actually. But we see specifically here a prophecy that God the Father will descend from heaven in the future to the earth and he will dwell with mankind on the earth. The new Jerusalem will be established on the earth and it will be the place where God's throne is. And it will be the place where the throne of Jesus Christ is as well. What will they be reigning over? Notice, uh, actually, let's, let's go on to, to verse, chapter 22 and verse 3. Chapter 22 and verse 3, it says, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, this speaking of the new Jerusalem, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, we're told here that the throne of God and of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will be there in the new Jerusalem on the earth. 
What, what will they be reigning over? What is it they're going to be reigning over on those thrones? Will it be only the earth? Whatever it is, we've already seen that the saints will be sharing in that government. That, that Christ promised that, that he would grant to those who overcome the power to sit on his throne as he is, sits on his father's throne. What has Jesus Christ been given authority over? Matthew 28 and verse 18, notice what Jesus said. Matthew 28 and verse 18. We've already kind of answered this question, but let's look at another example. Jesus came and spoke to them, to his disciples, and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What else is left? What is left that Christ does not have authority over? It certainly would include the universe, wouldn't it? In other words, he's saying that he's been given authority over everything. All authority, he says. We're told that God created the universe for a purpose. There's a reason why God created the universe. It wasn't just because he had time to kill and he decided he'd make something. <clears throat> Over in Isaiah 40 and verse 22, Isaiah 40 and verse 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, or the sphere of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now the implication of that is that the heavens were made as a dwelling place for God. We already, we've already seen that that at some point, Jesus Christ is going to come to the earth to make that his place of habitation. Later on, God the Father will come to the earth to join Christ and the rest of mankind who have been resurrected into the divine family. And God the Father, too, will make the earth the place of his throne. And if the universe is a place for the habitation of God, that means the earth will be the, 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 the place of uh, rulership for the entire universe. It will be the headquarters of the government of the entire universe. And certainly God's dominion includes all creation. It includes the entire universe. Now, 
that creation was created to be ruled over. And as we've seen, evidently, it was created to be inhabited. It's created to be ruled over because we've read a number of scriptures that tell us that it is ruled over, that Christ has been given authority over it. And we've read at least a suggestion that it will be inhabited. In any case, those who overcome, we're told, will be made sons in God's eternal kingdom. And those sons will inherit all things. Again, in Revelation 21, Revelation 21, and verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now, we've been discussing here what all things means. It means everything. Just as Jesus Christ was given a heritage which includes all things, and we're told that we are joint heirs with Christ, this scripture plainly says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Ta ponta, the universe the all, the everything, will be given to his family, his sons. He will be God and they will be his sons. And what that means is that the sons of God will inherit the entire universe. Among other things, including eternal life. Now, God doesn't give us a lot of detail about how all of this is to be worked out or how that inheritance will be divided. And later on, we will be discussing more uh, information about that, which might at least give us some clues about it. God's Word doesn't spell out, for example, exactly what your particular inheritance might be. Ultimately, if you are in God's kingdom as one of his sons. There's nothing in the Bible that you can point to that tells you precisely what your individual lot will be in that inheritance. As far as I know, there's no scripture that says that each of his God's sons will be given a planet. And somebody, I don't know what the context of that was, but there's no scripture that says each son of God will be given his own planet to rule. It's just somebody's speculation. But what God's word clearly does teach is that God's family will, in fact, rule the entire universe. And the fact is that each of God's sons will have a part in that inheritance. We're told that very specifically and very plainly. 
So just for argument's sake, what if God did, in fact, give you a planet? What if God did give you a planet? What if God gave you a whole galaxy? What if God gave you billions of galaxies and told you to administer that portion of his domain? Would you be able to handle the job? Would you be able to handle the job? Isn't that sort of what the question originally gets down to? What is it that God is looking for? Is God looking for people who are really talented and successful? Is God looking for people who've proven that they can handle big jobs, that they can manage businesses, maybe huge corporations, maybe people who've proven that they can rule whole nations? Are those the kind of people that God is looking for to be in his kingdom? And if he's not, why not? Why wouldn't God be looking for people with a track record, proving that they can handle big jobs? If he's not doing that, why not? And also, if that's not the kind of people that God is looking for, what is God looking for? What does God expect of us that we might share in his glorious inheritance. I'm going to save that part of the question for another sermon. So I hope you'll be, in the meantime, thinking about it.